Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast with more blind optimism than Sheffield Wednesday's owner. My name is Rupert Meadows and I've written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Gibby Sport. My co-host Karen McDonald has spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Rupert. And we've had all sorts of interesting uh, non-Premier League things uh, happening this week. We had the Ballon d'Or uh, last night and all the associate awards that go along with it, from the Copper Trophy uh, to the Trophy Yashin, the uh, sort of the sort of young talent and, and goalkeeper ones, respectively, and some interesting rankings. Um, we had uh, Jude Bellingham over, who was, of course, the winner of the Copper Trophy, uh, scoring two in his first El Clasico to win the match, uh, and certainly sort of uh, making every England fan quite excited indeed. Um, obviously back in the Premier League we had Gary Neville blaming the Glazers once again but is there maybe a little bit more nuance to the conversation these days than just it's the Glazers why United are bad a little bit more on that later Um, Chelsea another team not in the best form at the moment returning to their previous stinker the classic sort of like coming out and doing really well against Arsenal and then immediately losing to Brentford Uh, and Eddie Nketiah he's coming to form it's still a little while out from January so is it actually a turnaround for him or was he just playing Sheffield United um, so all of that and lots more to get into, but let's kick it off with the most recent news, that was last night's news, uh, of Lionel Messi winning his eighth Ballon d'Or. He sure did, and I don't know how many people I represent when I say this, but I personally think that this is a good choice of person to win it. Um, I'm happy he won it. I would definitely say that there are some in the past that he's won that I would contest. A couple of times where I feel like the vote has been more for... Who do I think in my capacity as a journalist is the best footballer rather than what I think it should be about, which is who has had the best footballing year. Um, but I think, you know, he he dragged his country by the scruff of its neck to a World Cup victory. And it feels like a signing off uh, for his his top flight professional career as he's now moved to America. This felt about right. What are your thoughts? I quite like the discourse around this uh, this Ballon d'Or sort of run-in between, it was always sort of mainly between Messi and Haaland. I think some people maybe had Mbappe as a shout, but it was it was those two chiefly. And the reason I liked it was because unlike some other Ballon d'Or debates, whether it's a Messi versus Ronaldo or a Messi or Ronaldo versus a Benzema or a Lewandowski or someone, is that this wasn't so much so about who had had the better domestic season. It was a strict sort of like, which is the greater achievement? the treble or winning the World Cup. And I suppose, although there's a few other factors that would would have been taken into consideration, you could say that Messi winning this is sort of an argument or a victory in miniature for the World Cup being the apex of football, Um, which is funny because... You know, I think there's really reasonable arguments on both sides. I've had sort of this conversation with a good friend of mine back and forth for the last sort of six, seven weeks where, you know, he'll say, well, you know, as good as the World Cup is, it's you've got to play well for three weeks. And I, in my opinion, I think playing over the course of a season and scoring, you know, how many goals it was that Haaland ended up with is much more impressive. And I can definitely see the argument for that. I can definitely see... You know, if you play well for three weeks, which many players do, Marcus Rashford does that habitually, and no one thinks he's you know plays well for three weeks a season, and no one thinks he's world class. Mm-hmm. Um, I could see how you would make the case that that's less impressive than doing it over the course of a whole season. But on the other hand, if it was that easy to play that well for three weeks, everyone would be doing it. Harry Kane would have won about four international trophies. So uh, I think you've got to observe <laughs> the context of like. Yes, you've got to play well for three weeks, but also you can't afford to make a mistake for three weeks. You know, you lose one game when you get to the knockouts and that's it. You have one poor performance and and that's it. There's no chance for redemption. Whereas, you know, in a league format, 
I mean, a great example is Man City spent the vast, vast majority of last season behind in the title race. Now, obviously, because it was a league format, they had time to get back. But if you have a slow start in the World Cup or any knockout tournament, you don't have the time to come back. You're out and that's it. So I can definitely see the arguments for both. Who would I have rather won it? For me personally, I am a sort of a, a big World Cup is the apex of the sport guy. Um, I don't know if you sort of share that view, but for me, it's it, it is only three weeks and it only comes once every four years. But that means you have to get it exactly right. And a lot of Messi's team did not get it exactly right, but he, mm. you know, was the first player ever to score in every round of the tournament. So, so I thought. You know, I really wouldn't have been unhappy to see it go to either of them, but I wasn't, you know, I I was maybe less unhappy to see it go to Lionel Messi. Yeah, I think that's about right. I think it's almost funny because this was probably the only thing that would have um, unseated Erling Haaland as the winner of the Ballon d'Or, which would would have been if Messi or maybe Ronaldo had won the World Cup. Um, And that's exactly what happened. Um, Do I think that Haaland is one of the best players in the world? Obviously, yes. Do I think that he's second only to Messi in this year? Obviously, yes. I do feel like the fact that it's also every four years adds an extra weighting to it um, than the Champions League, which runs every single year. And yeah, I, I do think that the ability to perform that consistently, I think the fact that I think his impact for his team was greater than Erling Haaland's. Yes, you can make the argument that the first season Haaland's there is the first season that Man City actually managed to win the Champions League. But I do think there are other factors at play, such as poor um, runs of form from a lot of the other elite clubs across Europe um, for Haaland. And and so I, I feel like it's deserved because, again, Messi's contribution to the team was greater. Yeah, and I, I think all you need to look at for evidence of that is just look at the rest of the Ballon d'Or rankings. Like, the, the top 30 is absolutely littered. I think there's about seven City players there, and there were only two Argentinian players, one of whom, aside from Messi, one of whom was Julian Alvarez, who is a City player, and the other, of course, being Emiliano Martinez. So I think to make the case that Lionel Messi, you know, th- this is fundamentally an individual award, and I think Erling Haaland was the crown jewel of a fantastic team, and a team that also won, you know, the best team in Europe earlier that night at the same award ceremony. Ceremony. Um, but I think for me, Erling Haaland, as incredible as his season was, to win the treble with a team that was already pretty much a lock on to win the league nine times out of ten, and most of the time the FA Cup as well. And the only reason they hadn't won the, the Champions League was sort of arguably they're kind of like a PSG, and why haven't they won it earlier? Because they really should have. So obviously he did help take them over the top and, and, and was really instrumental in that treble winning side. But I think being the sort of cherry on what was already a pretty outstanding cake is less impressive than, I mean, you look at even just like that Argentina lineup for the final and Messi has basically dragged them tooth and nail to a final and then won that final for them. So I I think it's got to go to him for me. Yep, I I fully agree. I think you've put that pretty well. Um, And also there's definitely a sense that Erling Haaland will probably win it in the future. Um, I think... This definitely also feels like a changing of the guard moment. Both Messi and Ronaldo, who've won the last however many, barring um, a couple, have both left European top flight. Um, They will most likely not win a single one anymore in the future. They're both pretty old now as well. And we're seeing new players emerge. We're obviously going to talk about Jude Bellingham a little bit later on, but Mbappe and Haaland and all of these um, really exciting young players are coming through as a new generation. 
the passing of the guard has happened. It felt, it felt um for my kind of romantic idea of football, fitting that Messi won the World Cup and also that he picked up the the prize last night. Yeah, I think. Uh, well, I think that's what a lot of people who think Haaland should have won it do say, as they go like the romance and the sort of narrative and the fairy tale was too good for Messi not to win it, which is arguably why they would say he has won it rather than strictly footballing merit. Which again, I can see the the, the argument for that. I, I just happen to think that doing that with Argentina in the World Cup is is more impressive than doing it with City. Um, well, that's that's the that's the sure. sort of the Ballon d'Or and, and who won it and who we think. I just want to ask you this because one of the things that I sort of lost a little bit. I, I did watch the ceremony last night. Um, but one of the things that was sort of slightly lost on me is that, unfortunately, we have known the winner for about two weeks um, because it's been spoiled by uh, some of the various transfer ITKs, notably Fabrizio Romano. And I, it's kind of sad. I, I, I want to ask you this question. Are parts of football being ruined by constant leaks? Because this was an award ceremony that, you know, the Ballon d'Or is not the the thing I get most excited about at the start of every season, but it's certainly an exciting night, and that was sort of robbed, and it, it got me kind of thinking about other parts of football as well, in as much as as much as I love logging onto Twitter and seeing a Fabrizio Romano or a David Ornstein or, or whoever it is announce a big transfer, it's like, oh, wow, it, it kind of, there's no substitute to what it used to be, which was just the unveiling of a player, or you didn't know until you saw them there, and you were like, what? Um, or there were sort of pictures that were snapped of them getting yeah. to the training ground. I mean, I mean, am I old man shouts at cloud here, yearning for for a sort of a better days of my youth, or are you sort of are you in agreement that parts of football are being slightly ruined by constant leaks? I, I agree with you. I think I think there are different types of leak. Obviously, things like the Ballon d'Or, I imagine, probably is just a direct leak. I think there are times where l- things are leaked intentionally to kind of gauge the mood before they actually unveil what happens. Um, I think we talked about that a little bit um, when it came to the treatment of Mason Greenwood by Manchester United. Um, so I think I think there are times where, yeah, it, it is obviously really ruinous and times where it's a little bit of a tool used by organisations. It's obviously a shame and it's not something you want, especially, especially in um, a hotly contested Ballon d'Or year. And I think this was probably one of the most hotly contested years because if you look down... Um, the years gone by, a lot of them, it's just a straight deal. It's obviously going to be Messi because he scored 90 goals a year, in that year, or it's obviously going to be Ronaldo because of um, you know his fantastic performances. Storm to the Champions League, and yeah, it, exactly. And this was one of the first years where you know their influence in world football is waning. Yes, Messi had won the World Cup, but was now playing in America, which is not a, a very highly considered league in in comparative terms. Um, so. That's very disappointing, and yes, it's absolutely something that is is hurting the game. Um, what I would add, which I'm going to put it back to you, I'm going to put a little bit more sauce on top, and then and then return the favour. Do you think the Ballon d'Or should be completely changed? Um, I'm sure I'm not the only one that agrees with at least some of the criticisms that the Ballon d'Or has has seen in the past. Um, there's definitely been criticism over things like um, the the impact that journalists have. Um, the impact that people who don't necessarily know the game very well can have. Um, and then also things like these leaks are happening, which isn't very professional. Um, you know, I think, for example, the the Ballon d'Or was scheduled during um, women's football's international break. Um, I think it was, yeah, sorry, mm-hmm. their international window. Um, so that meant that a lot of the, the female players couldn't go. 
and and that seems like such an oversight and for me personally i just think it's a it's a french journalists trophy <laughs> that has taken up in, in a lot of ways the highest uh you know single footballer honor in world football is that wrong I mean, I don't know. I, I get the sense that the Ballon d'Or is one of those things that we as fans probably attribute a lot more to than the players themselves actually do. Like when you, I don't know if you watched it last night, but the, the when Itana Bonmarti uh, picked up the, uh, the 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 women's Ballon d'Or, she she just she looked kind of nonplussed, and I was like, I wonder if, and, and I think even um, I think even I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was. Um, Gary Lineker said that someone, but there was someone there talking of the night and they were like, look, like fundamentally at the end of the day, awards like this are nice, but what we all want is the team awards. Like um, we're not, he didn't, he didn't say we're not that bothered, but they, they inferred at least to my mind, like great, like the Ballon d'Or is great and it's an honor, but what I would really want to win is the league next season or the Champions League or the World Cup with my country, because that's what the sport is built around. So I think maybe there's an aspect of, and this is entirely conjecture from me, but maybe there's an aspect of like, we as fans go like, oh, Ballon d'Or, Ballon d'Or. And I'm sure as for, for players, that's a great a great honour to win it. But relative to some of the other honours available in the, uh, in the footballing world, it, it doesn't shine as brightly as it does to us fans. Well, I, I do think that's a fair point. And um. I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but um, Micah Richards asked Thierry Henry this live on air um, recently because he was talking about the 2003 Ballon d'Or where Thierry Henry was pipped to the award by Pavel Nedved, despite having uh, Mm. much worse numbers for goals and assists for that season. Um, And Thierry Henry basically said, well, look, it's, it's an award that journalists decide and you know, you kind of have to just accept that. Uh, and while that's true, and, and I felt like it was a, a relatively measured response, it's it's hard not to read into um, all of these things, the the biases that they have because they want to win it or they're angry that they didn't win it or anything like this. Um, I agree broadly that, that yes, um, it is about the the group accolades and people just want to win things but also it's about legacy and and people care about legacies so i think it would also be wrong to say that football players don't care at all they probably don't place a crazy amount of importance on it but it's probably slightly more important than your fifa rating for example <laughs> yeah well, well i don't know uh actually no, probably no, I'm, I'm not saying they don't care about it obviously that would be that'd be insane but I, I think maybe they care about it i think there's a lot of mysticism and prestige around the ballon d'or uh you know that that comes through in a lot of the marketing and it's you know very deliberate and maybe it isn't felt the exact same way by the players i mean it's funny you mentioned about changing it because the voting system has changed a couple of times and obviously the other notable one was that fifa obviously had their one their fifa the best and and no one really talks about it i feel like the ballon d'or has been going on long enough now that it will kind of always be the footballing tradition um which i don't mind i i, I like it but i uh i just hope that we stop getting as many leaks yeah i don't know i mean i feel like FIFA talk a big game and often flop. Um, I mean, again, to go back to FIFA as an example, the fact that they claimed they were going to be bringing forward their own FIFA game to compete with the new, whatever it's called, EAFC, um, and that every football fan would play that instead, and the fact that they just haven't even bothered to even try to release a game um, (laughs) is a good example of the fact that FIFA's mouth is is much bigger than their actual um, impact uh, at times, 
obviously they do still run world football um but when it comes to these kind of uh slightly more social moments um they definitely can't compete with um the ballon d'or which is not to say that i don't think someone else shouldn't try and, and do it um i don't know who that would be i don't know if it would be a uefa one but then i wouldn't not sure if i would like that um or just the confederations getting together uh, I'm, I'm not sure but i personally think that there are flaws to it i think it could be done a lot better i don't think it'd be that hard to do it a lot better i think i'd enjoy it more if it was better um but it is what it is it's fun to watch i'm glad he won it so it goes well, let's move on from the Ballon d'Or because that, of course, commemorated the best player uh, over the last year. We may already have a frontrunner for next year's Ballon d'Or, not Erling Haaland, but his former teammate, Jude Bellingham, who is absolutely steaming around La Liga. He is the top scorer. He actually has as many goals in all competition as Erling Haaland this season, which is an absolutely bonkers stat, um, given that that's never really been something in his locker. Um, I think, like, in all of his previous seasons, bar one or two, um, bar one, sorry, he's had, like, single-digit <laughs> accumulated goals in all competitions, and he's already got 10 in the league alone. Um, is he the best player in the league, in the world right now, rather? Yes. On form, absolutely. It's it's one of those, isn't it? I suppose it's sort of like, uh, you know, what do you qualify as, uh, you know, the best player in the world? Is he the best player in the world this week? Absolutely. Last couple of weeks? Absolutely. Does that qualify him as the best player in the world? Yeah, he's, sorry, that was it. He has won his final season at Borussia Dortmund. He scored 14 goals in all competitions uh, and eight goals in the league. He's already got 10 goals in all competitions and 13. So one more, and he's equaled his best ever uh, league season in terms of goals in November. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. Um it's it's obviously uh you know we're watching the the transformation of someone who was already one of the most exciting young players in the world to quite literally one of the best in the space of weeks it seems um i'm sure he will cool off at some point um which is not to say that he will stop being amazing but it does feel like you literally can't maintain this level of of goal scoring ability when he when he's not had it in the past but then also, you know, it could be to do with the fact that his role is different at Real Madrid, and he's always had a bit of that in him. Um, it's quite a fun yeah, fact. And, and also he's... Sorry, go on. Sorry, sorry, you go, you go. Ah, well, quite a fun fact, and one I was actually going to have as a useless trivia potentially at some point, but um, Jude Bellingham at Borussia Dortmund took on the um, the number 22. And for those who don't know, the reason why he did that was because he felt like he could play in any of the roles of the number four, the number eight, or the number 10. Um, and also, I think that reflected how Borussia Dortmund said they wanted to play him, how they wanted to develop him. And he's definitely grown into a player that seems to have it all. He's playing further forward at Real Madrid. He's taken on the number five shirt, but he's playing more like um, a second striker or kind of a, a really high attacking midfielder. And and he's clearly always had that as part of his game. So it could also just be that he's been unleashed. Um, the third option always is that uh, this might be the uh, La Liga multiplier <laughs> being added to uh, yeah, well. um, a, a good player. <laughs> and suddenly they've gone from someone who's able to score 10 goals a season to someone who's able to score 20. Um, who's to say? It's It's very possible. I mean, I have to fact check to you initially. I think you maybe you misspoke, but you said that at Borussia Dortmund he picked up the number twenty-two shirt. He of course had the number twenty-two shirt at Birmingham City because remember they famously retired it. 
Oh, of course. Well, sorry, before before that as well, then he had he had that number. I think it's right that that's why he has that number. Um, he might well I, th- I think it was a coach at Birmingham, at Birmingham City who gave him that number. And then Birmingham City, I, I actually, a good friend of mine is a, is a Birmingham City fan. And he, he has, um, he literally every time Bellingham is good now, he's like, you all laughed when Birmingham City retired Bellingham's number. Well, you're not laughing now, are you? I mean, uh, it's still a little bit over the top. It's, I agree. It's, it's still a little I, bit dramatic. I, I am still laughing um, about it. <laughs> um, but I mean, hey, they it, were definitely it, right that he's a very good footballer. But to retire his, his shirt after like less than 50 games for the for the side is, is a little bit crazy. Um, I think the other thing, of course, as well, is like he's 20 years old. He's, he's, like, he's just... It, like if you look at his season by season performances, obviously he's gone from Birmingham City to Borussia Dortmund to Real Madrid, which contributes to that. But he's not ended up there because he won a prize in the cereal box. He's just getting better each year, and if this is sort of what he's on course for this time next season, have about thirty goals in ten games, and we'll be like, "Oh my god, Jude Bellingham!" It's frightening and exciting, and you know, personally, as an England fan, I am licking my lips at the idea. Um, I'm I will be furious if Gareth Southgate decides to let Jordan Henderson get literally anywhere near a football pitch when Declan Rice and Jude Bellingham are both available to play. I mean, I, I don't want to take too much of a tangent now because we'll have plenty of time in, in, in the summer, but it really is going to be astonishing to see how Gareth Southgate manages to not win the Euros when he's got Jude Bellingham, who I would also say yeah, is probably the best player in the world right now, Declan Rice, who is like just kicking on from where he was with West Ham with Arsenal, Bakaya Saka's doing so well, Phil Foden's having a brilliant season, Harry Kane is scoring goals like it's going out of fashion for Bayern Munich, all of these players like coming together so well, and it's like, and even like how James are you this up? Well. Yeah, J- James Madison's doing well. You've even got players like, um, you know, like Jack Riddish who are, who are on the fringes, but, you know, would sure, walk sure. into a lot of other teams who are absolutely brilliant. Um, you know, Carl Walker still looks fantastic. I mean, I, you know, there's like three different goalkeepers you could choose from who would all be, be pretty good choices. And it's like, how are you going to fuck this up? Because you'll find a way. <laughs> It'll be Maguire and Henderson up top in a four four two, and And we'll all be going, no! Honestly, uh, yeah. Thanks, Gareth. I think that yeah should should be thanks and goodbye. Um, but we shall see. He could win it. I mean, imagine if he imagine if he won it. I I'd be definitely beating some humble pie, if not all. I I, I would go as far as to say like this, and maybe this is just my sort of big English Union uh, <laughs> George's Cross hat rather uh, sort of clouding my judgment. But like, I would go as far as to say with some of the players that he's got at his disposal right now, it's kind of like a PSG and league on situation. Like, if you don't win it, obviously if he wins it, it's tremendous. And, you know, we haven't won a major trophy in, in like 50, 50, what, 57 years now. Uh, so obviously that's tremendous. But if he doesn't win it, I'll also be like, that is a fa- Like, we should, unless we lose in the final to, like, France, we should, on paper, and obviously Phil was one of the game playing on paper, but on paper be beating pretty much every other European team. Uh... I mean, you are right, but I, I do think that's still a pretty spicy take. That like the the idea that we'd win the Euros and you'd go, yeah, too right, Gareth. We should have won it, rather than oh my god, we've won a trophy. Thank fuck. 
No, I think at the moment that we win it, I would obviously be completely overjoyed. Uh, I think, you know, other non-English fans would be like, well, yeah, they should have won it. I, as an England fan, will, of course, just be drowning in tears and, and beer. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> I, I think if he, if, he, if he doesn't at least get to the final with this team now, I mean, God, like some of those players are just the, some of the most informed players in Europe. Um, and you've even you would think so. You didn't mention you would that. Think so. like your John Stones, who's come back from injury, sure. and Tamori and... Carl Walker. Reese James, obviously, when he's fit. Yeah, anyway, that's a bit of a tangent. Let's not stick yeah. too long on England because, as I mentioned, we'll have Kieran lots Trippier. of time. Um, <laughs> I want to talk next about Gary Neville and the Glazers because Gary Neville has long had an axe to grind with the Glazers, and I think with good reason, but I think it's maybe getting to a point now. He had a big sort of uh, big explosive rant after United lost to City 3-0, which we will also be talking about, but I want to start off with this. It's it's sort of got to a point now with, and I say Gary Neville, but there's a, a lot of United fans of, of a certain persuasion who anything bad that happens, it's the Glazers' fault. Like if Marcus Rashford scores an own goal, it's as if Avram Glazer has run out onto the pitch himself and put it in, in the wrong net. And I'm kind of like, I mean, I, I'm keen to, I want to just hear what you think because for me, there's a lot of things you can blame the Glazers for, and I think they are ultimately the root cause. But equally, I don't think it's doing United any favors that. Essentially, Ten Hag is getting a hall pass because the Glazers are what the Glazers are the ones who are playing Fernandez on the right wing and getting uh, Anthony into games all the time and playing Maguire for tactical reasons, not Ten Hag. It is funny, isn't it? Because so I was reading an article earlier, and the title of the article, I think, it was on Football Today, was Neville highlights cultural toxicity at Man United, blames clubs' woes on Glazer family, and and I definitely felt a small degree of of irony attached to it which is that obviously what neville is doing is is kind of creating a a toxic culture um directed at the owners um and i think it's 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 easy to see what gary neville is driving at which is that he wants the glazers out he thinks they're bad for the club and anything that man united does badly is fuel for the fire um so I think you can definitely understand why Gary Neville does it, but I think you also probably have to add a pinch of of that context salt to um, to the the melting pot uh, at Man U and recognise that he's probably got a bit of an agenda when he says stuff like that. I think that I, I, I think the, he is right with with having that agenda, but I, I think the problem is because he was asked quite directly in this conversation. I don't know if you saw it, but he was asked quite directly about. Um, you know, someone made the comparison of, uh, you know, Spurs and Aston Villa. And Gary was going, oh, well, you know, it's different. You know, Andrew Postacoglu's come in, but he's quite settled. And, you know, the environment there. And I was looking at that. And, like, personally, for me, like, I have no love lost for Manchester United. So as long as they're going to just blame everything on the Glazers, it sits well with me. But you can't say that Ange Postacoglu came into Spurs at a stable time. <laughs> their director of football had just gone to jail. Their One of their owners was just, like, <laughs> indicted for uh, for insider trading. All of their fans have hated their ownership for about a decade, and they just lost the club's best ever player in the summer. And and, and Gary Neville's going, yeah. oh, oh. And, and obviously, it, we're only 10 games in the season. Spurs could still completely capitulate and finish fifth or whatever. But the idea that... You know, the idea that, oh, the Glazers have created an environment so toxic that no one can succeed and any failure is always a squarely at their door. Postagoglu's come in, and again, small sample size, but against the backdrop of a lot of things on fire at Spurs, has got the team winning games and playing really nice football. So I kind of don't understand Gary's point when he's like, oh, no, like, Eric Ten Hag, like, yeah, we gave him 400 million, but impossible task, impossible task, I'm afraid. 
yeah, I, I agree. That's why I'm saying I don't think there's there's as much contextual accuracy as there is wider context. Um, you know, I think mm, yeah, I think right. what he's what he's saying is basically I want the Glazers out, and I've been put on TV at a point where Man United have, have played badly and been given the opportunity to say whatever I want about the club, and I've chosen to target what what I do. You know what I mean? I, I think. I think it's quite obviously that, and, and I, I do you know, know what you mean. But he's, he's Gary Neville is, is by no means the, the first the first pundit to be biased towards their own club, um, and I think that he probably gets a little bit too much of a of a hall pass um, as well uh, within punditry because for the most part he's pretty fair and balanced, and I think the fact that he does speak out against the club ownership is often seen as oh you know he'll he'll happily criticise anyone he's not biased but. It massively is the case, and I think your example of Tottenham Hotspur and him talking about that is a is a great example, the perfect example, because you're absolutely right. Tottenham was in disarray. Um, I didn't think they were going to be doing nearly as well as as they've been doing. I think got massively credit the not just the manager but the club, um, you know the um, the players and the staff and all of that. Um, and in the same way, when you talk about Man U not performing up to the standard, you kind of have to criticize everyone. I, I agree with you. I think that. It starts from the top down, but also it's okay to... I feel like a lot of Man U fans, maybe Gary Neville included, are almost terrified to expect anything of a manager anymore because it just feels like wholesale change must be needed because so many have come in and failed. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I think a, a lot of things are, are at fault. I think wholesale change definitely is needed. I'm, I'm not for a second, you know, absolving the Glazers of what is the lion's share of the, of the blame, but it's just so funny that that has become, and again, as someone who hasn't got a lot, lot, lot of love lost for Manchester United, I'd say bring it on because the longer these blinkers are on, the longer Ten Hag will stay in the job. But we're talking about a guy who's come in, he's been there for about 18 months, he spent about £400 million, most of that on players that he's either worked with in the past uh, or have been in the Eredivisie most of those players who haven't really done so well, they're playing this sort of like incoherent, you can't even really call it a style because it changes game to game and and it's not attractive at all. When they win, they're barely scraping by and when they lose, they're getting humiliated in games like this. So, you know, long may it continue because (laughs) I think as anyone who grew up when we did, it's, it's nice to United a little bit, struggling a little bit, but it's just so funny that all of that like, playing Bruno Fernandes, who is probably the club's best player out of his natural position, also having Bruno Fernandes, who is the club's best player, but also the club's biggest baby as the club captain. Um, You know, not having Mm -hmm. McTominay in so Mount can play, not having Varane in so so Maguire can play. These are not things that Joel and Avram Glazer are forcing Ten Hag to do. And the longer that they're sort of blamed for that and Ten Hag's allowed to manage United into a a, crevice, the longer the problems will continue, Gary, I'm afraid. Yeah, um, I completely agree. I think I think it's tough because when you are coming up against someone like Man City, you almost have to throw a lot of logic out the window and and really try and just come up with something that you think might work. Um, that's not always true. Sometimes you can hope for a bad performance from from Man City, um, or just set up to frustrate and hope that that works. That's kind of how I I guess I viewed his decision here. Um, to, to try and play slightly more defensive players, slightly more robust players, maybe try and nick one from someone like um, Bruno Fernandes getting a bit of space out wide because maybe Man City have been caught in transition or something like that. 
Um, but yeah, I think with hindsight, anything that that could have gone well but goes wrong looks bad and, and seems to have been a mistake. Um, and I, I, th- I think it broadly was, but I also think you kind of have to you have to take any loss to Man City with a bit of a a pinch of salt. But that again is not to exclude the rest of of Manchester United's performances, which have been pretty hit and miss. Yeah, I think some of them are just quite baffling. I mean, there was the whole sort of like Johnny Evans and Maguire at centre-back was obviously really bizarre. But then also Victor Lindelof, who's a right-footed player at left-back instead of Sergio Regulon. Um, Scott McTominay obviously sort of playing a lot higher and sort of an attacking diamond. I, I guess maybe made some sense given his recent form, but also like if you're going to throw out the £70 million player you've bought in the summer for someone in like three, four weeks of good form... Should you be making those big signings in the first place? Should that be raising some eyebrows? Um, I think, yeah, it's just you look at sort of their their forwards, um, their forward sort of goal tally this season. Like not not Rashford. I think it's like literally just um, Hoyland, Anthony, uh, Sancho, Martial, and oh, there was one other. But it's like between them, they've got one goal, I think, <laughs> and, and maybe one assist. We did about five attacking players. Um, yeah, they just can't seem to. Damning stat. Yeah, and 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 they just can't seem to to make it work. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I it's mean, I think it's bad times for for United. Yeah, I mean, if I was if I was in charge of Manchester United, I'd be trying to sign someone like Pierre Emil Hoiberg, someone who is good defensively but can also really help in transitions. Um, it seems to be their their real flaw. Um, it's still the middle of the park. They've got a little bit more defensive solidity now, but they still don't have the the wherewithal to be able to operate as a fully functioning top to bottom team that can that can transition correctly. Um, they've tried even things like putting Christian Eriksen in in a pivot role, and the man's like five foot nothing, um, which seems mm. to undermine uh, all and, of their and also has come back from a heart failure. So should he be running the line, like running around by <laughs> the pitch all day long? um yeah exactly and so yeah i think but again i think that's if you think about the amount of people that go into signing a player it's it's so rarely just one person yes a lot of the time you hear these stories about like you know the manager just had to have this one player but also the checks and balances that that get done for someone to sign um for a club to sign a player um you know the scouts that do it the um you know the the people at the club that handle transfers there'll be a team um the the sporting director the manager will be consulted oftentimes top players are consulted um sometimes the board are consulted you know the amount of people that that have been that that decisions will have gone through um that have led to these pretty bad transfer decisions i think we can agree on um over the years means that it it really isn't just one person's fault that Manchester United are the way that they no, are. No, that's certainly true. Um, no, I mean, yeah, no, that, that that's certainly true. And I think even if you have someone like example of someone like Anthony, who I think is <laughs> he was pretty much a ten hog joint, um, or Lissandro Martinez, yeah. who was really good last season. But like even these armed players are those. There are certainly enough other players, and also enough players over the last ten years for Manchester United who've been signed and done horribly that you can't just lay that at ten hog's door. Um, but I think sure. everything is. You know, a multifaceted issue at Manchester United. Um, well, I thought this was another game, aside from that, where Bruno Fernandes just just complaining again and kicking out, and 
how have United gone from Roy Keane to him as captain? He is, uh, honestly, I would hate it for him to be my club's captain. Obviously, he's a brilliant footballer, mm-hmm. but just like, what a little, a, a weaselly rat man <laughs> that I would hate to represent the club and pull on the shirt, much less the armband every week. <laughs> yeah, let's, don't let your bias get too, too serious. <laughs> no, I just I, I, I look at him every week, and he's always sort of moaning away to the ref, and sort of squeaking away and kicking other players. And I'm like, I'd be embarrassed to have you play for us, much much less like captain us. Well, I mean, ironically, all of those traits that you've just described as are all things that Roy Keane did in abundance. <laughs> what squeak, squeaking and moaning at refs? He definitely he definitely kicked out and had a few late challenges. Time I don't know if he did the other two. You don't think he shouts at refs? Oh, I, I fundamentally disagree. I think all of those major whoa, captains whoa, whoa, that you whoa, can whoa, think whoa. of. That's, that's not what I said. I didn't say anything about shouting at refs. I said going up and being like, ee, 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 and okay. moaning at refs. Well, at least he's doing the same action. Ma- ma- maybe just I just don't like Bruno Fernandes. I don't know if that came across. <laughs> I think that might be it because, you know, complaining to referees and, and the dark arts, as, as they're often called, is a massive part of all of the the classic captains of old, from Patrick Vieira to John Terry to to Roy Keane. Um, every single one of them were, was an expert in in the dirtier side of football. Um, I think Bruno Fernandes is trying to do it. He just doesn't quite have the the kilos on him to to execute it. To seem he seems he seems whingy rather than authoritative, which like the big players back in the day when they'd go over and sort of bark at the ref, that sat well with me. But sort of someone who's sort of going and whinging at the ref, I, I think is yeah. Uh, you you just want maybe you're you just right. want every captain to be like a Dean Ambrose, Sturdy. age thirty two, just like some six foot yeah. four absolute weapon of a human that will just shout at people to get in position. No, absolutely. Maybe you're right. Well, let's let's not stick on Fernandez uh, being a, a good or a bad captain for too long, because clearly uh, I'm not able to have a reasonable discussion about it. Um, <laughs> another big win for Manchester City, although this is becoming increasingly common for them uh, at Old Trafford. I love that line that was from a few years ago. It was like Alex Ferguson asked, "Would they win at Old Trafford?" He said, "Not in my lifetime. Now it's every time." And it sure, and that was about four or five <laughs> years ago, and it's still true now. Um, yeah. I want to go into a bit of useless trivia before we wrap up because my useless trivia Rupert this week is actually relevant to Manchester United I ah, see I plan ah. it perfectly um, well played I was sort of just bagging on Eric Ten Hag for selecting Harry Maguire over Raphael Varane and his, his general tactical uh, you know changes in general um, however here's an interesting stat I learned this week in Harry Maguire's last 18 starts for Manchester United 16 of them have been wins I'm sorry, would you say that one more time, please? In Harry Maguire, it's just bonkers. In Harry Maguire's last 18 starts for Manchester United, 16 have been wins. Now, before I continue my stunned silence, might I just very gently inquire as to the types of fixtures in which Harry Maguire is allowed to play these days? Well, that is certainly part of it, that Harry Maguire is sort of trotted out for the uh, quote-unquote easier games a lot of the time. It was actually 16 and 17, as would have been obvious, uh, before this game against Man City, which is the largest victory he started for a while. But yeah, prior to this game against uh, this Manchester derby, his win percentage over the last 17 games was at 94.3% when starting. Wow. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's pretty impressive. Uh... 
Have we been wrong all this time? <laughs> but perhaps we have. Who's to say? <laughs> wow, fair play. I, I would definitely want to look at the, uh, you know, if it's like he he won in the the League Cup's first and second rounds against Bradford and Ipswich Town. Um, and, and those are the games that contributed to, you know, um, that statistic. Maybe I, I would want to check that, but fair play. Fair, fair play. Um, pretty impressive. I mean, look, I don't think we've ever said that there isn't a good footballer there. It's more just that he's been asked to do a role which he simply fundamentally cannot do, which is lead a line. Um, and, and maybe maybe he's got a little bit more of, of that around him than he has done in the past in Manchester United. Maybe it's good fortune. Maybe it's a flash in the pan. Maybe it is the fact that he, he does get um, pitted against the, the weaker opponents um, at Manchester United. But that is still an impressive statistic nonetheless um and one i'm a big fan of whip whip that one out of the pub rupert and all listeners yeah it's always nice to have your uh your opinions challenged as well um so i i will also need to come up with a suitable rebuttal for if anyone else tries to whip it out first it's such a good one that as well because if you wanted to be like that guy at the pub which i know you like to be that guy at the pub and if someone's like bang on harry you could very easily be like actually he's got 16 wins in his last 18 starts and someone would be like well that's obviously bollocks you could be like google it (laughs) that's exactly the kind of thing i i would want to do to someone who would very much think that i was going to be their ally in that discussion (laughs) yeah (laughs) um well very impressive um I've got quite a funny little story for you this week, uh, which actually comes from um, earlier in October when Barcelona took on FC Porto in the Champions League on the 4th. Um, Barcelona ran out um, 1-0 winners that day. uh, And it was also um, a notable day in history because um, the youngest player ever to start a Champions League game um, played which was Barcelona's teenager, Lamine Yamal. Um, what Ooh. I did not see at the time, and what I have only heard about recently, is that, um, did you know that he went missing for about 10 minutes in the game between the 71st and the 82nd minute? Uh, no. What? <laughs> so um, in the 71st minute, um, one of Porto's players went down. Lamine Yamal himself put the ball out of play. And when play resumed, no one could see him. <laughs> he was nowhere to be found. Um, apparently, because uh, he is, of course, a, a young man, the nerves got to him and he had run into the dressing room and was being sick. Um, and he then uh, he then <laughs> That's tried... That's quite sweet. <laughs> it is very sweet. Um, I want to preface this by saying, like, this is an incredibly impressive young player who will very likely be a massive player in the future he's already rated um by transfer market at 50 million as a 16 year old so that's the kind of player we're dealing with so you know i want to preface it by saying like i'm not trying to rag on the the young lad um but uh upon um upon sorting himself out and coming back out he tried to rejoin the game and the referee didn't let him (laughs) at which point barcelona had to bring on a sub because he couldn't rejoin the game There you go. There you go. Oh, that's that's quite an endearing story about uh, a young lad who uh, has been. It's, yeah, it's cute, isn't it? And, and could well be. Um, if we're talking stats for the pub, store that one away in your back pocket. Five to ten years later, when he is he is a world star, 
winning his Ballon d'Or. You can trot that one out. Did you know on his Champions League debut as the youngest player ever, he had to leave the pitch because he threw up because he got nervous. Um, yeah, yeah. There, there you go. There you go, indeed. Well, uh, I, I like that one. Uh, let's get back to the Premier League because Chelsea have returned to form uh, with a nil two loss to Brentford. Um, but I actually <laughs> have been looking around a little bit at some things, and I wanted to um, I wanted to throw a couple of stats your direction because oh. Chelsea have started this season quite poorly um, in a continuation of last season. But what if I told you that? Chelsea might actually be statistically doing worse so far, in as much as they actually have eight less points than they had at this point last season. Yeah. As well, in... so, so, so as in this th- this point last season, they had twenty points. They now only have twelve. Now, part of that is uh, they were very very bad towards the back end of last season, and that sort of rolled into this. But it would imply, if you extrapolate their points over the course of a whole season, that they're going to finish even lower than they did last year. And obviously, it's pretty unlikely because they don't have Frank Lampard coming in probably <laughs> to finish off the season. But isn't that crazy? <laughs> they've, they're doing that much worse than they did this time last season. Uh I mean, it's a little crazy, but also, I mean, you know, yeah. I feel like a lot of the time with any sort of stat it's like whether or not it passes the eye test and I feel like it does um I don't think Chelsea actually had too bad a, a first couple of months of the season last season I mean it was bad um but it, it I don't remember it being as woeful as this it's funny because it was bad be fair, enough to get Thomas Tuchel sacked, but not as bad as like th- that was before the baseline for bad for Chelsea got so much worse. Like at the time well, that Thomas that's... Tuchel got sacked, losing three or four games was bad, and now that's like a good month. And oh, I didn't lose all five. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's that was actually kind of the point that I was about to make, which is that I feel like, yeah, the the performances are as bad proportionally. <laughs> as they were last season, but because Chelsea are, are just worse now, their stock has plummeted because of a, a bad year, it's it's kind of feels the same that they're they're now eight points worse than they were. Um I think oh, okay. also I, I don't know. Well, but I was gonna say I, I feel like collectively it seems like Chelsea are kind of just waiting around for it all to start clicking. Um will definitely wait and see how long that really takes but it, it is surprising that they have not been able to kind of shake themselves out of their their funk um you know they managed to draw with arsenal last week and that could have been a bit of a turnaround um and that came mm. after beating fulham and burnley um you know i think both away from home so, so a couple of pretty solid performances um seven points from a possible nine including some t- tough fixtures and and then they've just gone and undone all of their good work it, it is true and it's it's funny the thing you say about you know them waiting to click because i feel like he's been mentioned quite a few times i feel like there's going to be the most extraordinary and unfair amount of pressure on christopher and kunku when he comes back because it seems like oh, certainly yeah. some fans and maybe even to a degree some of the some of the people at the club that he's going to be like this sort of magical panacea that suddenly makes everything click in a place like oh i think even pochettino last weekend was like oh well you know and kunku obviously got injured in the last preseason game so that's really set us back and it's like he might be really good, but is he going to be, is one player going to turn this all around and one player who is like 
young, new to the league, and coming back from injury, and like his first game back is going to be like, okay, Christopher, we're 15th, but now we're going to win the league. Off you go. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a lot of pressure to put on him. I think, luckily for him, he has already scored a couple of goals for the club, so he's not gonna he's not gonna come in entirely fresh. Um, but you know, it, it's a good thing really that there's never been too much pressure put on Chelsea strikers, and that's never impacted negatively on strikers' careers. Question mark. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Okay, well, my first <laughs> stat didn't didn't really set you back the way that I thought why, it would. Um, but fortunately, I've, I've prepared. I've I've prepared a few more for you. Um, oh, Chelsea, uh, you mentioned they had a, a couple of runs of wins, two away from home. They've only actually beaten Luton Town uh, at Stamford Bridge this season, which led to a stat after Brentford's win uh, that I'm sure we've all seen, which is that Thomas Frank has more wins at Stamford Bridge in 2023 than Pochettino and Lampard combined. In fact, he has double as many. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that I, one I tickle love... you? That one do anything for you? Oh, oh, big fan. Big fan. Yeah, yeah. Love that one. Um... As it should be. Um, Brentford, Brentford are good away from home. Um, Chelsea bad everywhere, <laughs> home, home or not. Um, I'm a big fan of those kind of stats. And uh, honestly, I think it's, it's about right. My final stat for you is uh, on Chelsea's home form again. Although, although actually, uh, that lost... is pretty shocking. Two, two managers have only had one win at home. Uh, at over home how many, this year, how many yeah. games is that over? Like 15, 20? Um, well, they've lost eight home games in 2023, so that's over over eight. No, but it was wins, wasn't it? Those are eight home games lost. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, that'll be... So there there will have been draws as well, so I don't know how many that's going to be. (laughs) At least nine, (laughs) possibly more. (laughs) Wow. Um, Fantastic. Um, Yeah, like that one. Crack on. Astonishing. Uh, my, my final one, eight home games lost in 2023, which is their most in a calendar year since 1986. Uh, in 1986, they lost 10 home games. It's only October, and the next visitors to Stamford Bridge, Manchester City. <laughs> Watch them draw it. I bet they will. <laughs> I bet they will. <laughs> that wouldn't be that surprising. That's a weird thing that Chelsea have become these days. Honestly, I think all we need to happen for you to complete your your happiness trajectory is for Bruno Fernandes to join Chelsea. <laughs> Bruno Fernandes to join Chelsea and then both to go down. And and do badly, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I think he would. Well, there you would. go. It, it certainly has been a, a shockingly bad uh, season for Chelsea so far. Year for Chelsea so far. Um, and... Yeah, it, there does seem to be a, a a bit of a pattern emerging potentially with big clubs really significantly dropping off and being unable to kind of rehit heights. Um, might be worth yeah, have a think about that. Maybe we'll cover that in the future. Whether or not that is a trend emerging in football, and whether or not it is just that the 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 margins are so high and so fine um, in in English football at the moment that a couple of bad years can really set you on a steep decline. Um, anyway, more from another time. It, it is quite interesting because we've talked a lot in recent weeks about you know some of the other teams that are really doing well this season, whether it's a Newcastle or it's an Aston Villa, and 
you know, or, or even a Spurs who are doing much better this season than last season. And, and it does sort of beg the question of like, what is from this point the best case scenario for Chelsea? Like, I, I should say the best realistic case scenario. Because the best case scenario is obviously they win every single game and everyone else loses or draws their games and Chelsea win the league. But the best best case realistic scenario, I mean, top four. I, I again early doors but you would put pretty good money on top four being some combination of Spurs Liverpool Arsenal and Man City then you've got Villa Newcastle even Manchester United to a degree to, to contend with anyone I'm forgetting there um maybe Brighton as well so like Chelsea well, are Chelsea going to finish above any of those teams is, is best case scenario already real is best realistic case scenario at this point already like ninth or eighth I think I don't know how many cycles the Premier League has in terms of of dips uh, and and peaks of form, but there will be some. You know, Chelsea. No matter how yeah. bad a season you have, they will win a few games in a row. Um, and Brighton, as good they as will. they've been, they will, yeah. they they will have probably already. have a, a significantly worse um, period for a month or two um, than they've had so far. So, it, I would personally say it's too early to to rule them out of being able to finish in the top eight. Um, but it could well happen. I think you're absolutely right that it's something that is on the cards, definitely. The realistic worst case scenario, obviously, for them is: Have you seen all this news about uh, Willian and Samueletto in Chelsea? I have I think, not. I think it just came out today or, or last night. Essentially, there have been some allegations that the Premier League is investigating uh, regarding some... So, obviously, uh, Chelsea bought both Samuel Eto'o and Willian from uh, Angie Machikala, who at one time were sort of like the (laughs) Saudi Pro League club uh, of their heyday, sort of bringing over players on these massive wages and and massive fees. Um, Yeah, all all, all sorts of players went over to Russia and uh, it wasn't just Angie Machikala, but they were, I think, one because unlike some of the other Russian clubs that were doing it, I think Angie were a little bit more, like, popped up out of nowhere in terms of the the grander football football landscape. Anyway, Chelsea signed these two players from, from Angie when they were sort of going bust and unable to pay their players. And it has now come out, or it's now been alleged, uh, that there were, in addition to the payments to Angie Mashkala on the books, some sort of uh, surreptitious secondary payments to sort of other Russian bodies by Roman Abramovich, which would be um, obviously contravening various financial fair play laws. And supposedly the Premier League are seeking, if this is true, and it's proved to be true, a punishment of a 12-point deduction to Chelsea. Uh, and as a reminder, Chelsea, of course, only currently have 12 points to deduce. 12 points. <laughs> well, if they finish on zero points, um, then there'll be zero points after 10 games. And if you extrapolate that over the course of the season, <laughs> they'll finish the year below Luton. <laughs> um, well, and, and probably below Sheffield United as well. <laughs> Although, um, who knows? Maybe, maybe Sheffield yeah. United will conspire to have minus one. Very interesting. Well, I think um, if uh, I think uh, I'm also right in saying that, um, and she also signed Yuri Zhirkov from Chelsea um, about ten years ago. So there was for for a period at least a, a good working relationship between the two clubs. That's very interesting, and we will see um, what comes out of that. Um, it could be devastating for Chelsea if that's what happens. They will really have to try and um, do what they can to to avoid even being in contention for relegation, potentially. Um, 
although that still feels a little way off. Um, but maybe you should have placed your we, bet th- for Chelsea to get relegated this year. I think Chelsea would like. There's no way Chelsea would go down just because I think. Uh, in, you know, no offense to the uh, the Lutons or the Sheffield United. We're about to talk uh, Sheffield United in just a second. I think the quality amongst those two, and also Burnley, and also to a degree Bournemouth, is so bad um, that there's enough of a buffer for you know you could really afford this season to have an absolute you know shit your pants moment as Chelsea are trying to, um, and you wouldn't be in any danger of going down. You'd be comfortably like 16th. <laughs> That is that is probably true. Um, yeah, I do always feel like uh, think um, I used to play with uh, Angie Makshaka. Um, I used to call it Angie Makshakalaka because um, I didn't know how to pronounce it when I was a kid. Um, but I always used to think that they felt like they'd been like run by someone who was like a kid or loved FIFA because they had like Samueletto. They they had a six for eight striker called Lucina Troyore, which I, as a young man, yeah. thought was hilarious. Um, they signed Roberto Carlos, and then they had people like um, Yuri Zhirkov and stuff like that. Um, and it just felt like such a hilarious. I felt like there was other, there was one other quite cool, um, like international player, um, non-Russian. Oh, there, there was in attack. Um, someone there, like oh, there, Juan there were... Manuel Vargas or someone like that. Um, no, uh, I, I don't think it was Angie. There was Sado Dumbia, Cisco Moscow. Yeah, yeah. They, there were oh, a few. There were a few other was... um, cult figures kicking around at, at that time in history in Russia. Um, but yeah, a fun team to play with. That's for sure. Mm, so certainly they were. Well, on to now to Sheffield United uh, and their five nil thrashing at the hands of Arsenal. Um, Eddie Nketiah scoring a hat trick. Um, Three great goals as well, um, mm. you know, t- all sort of showcasing different strings to a striker's bow that you would want. Uh, one, an absolutely brilliant first touch to wrong foot his marker and then sort of a tidy finish. One, a real sort of poacher's goal, just chasing down the loose ball in the box and, and firing at home. And then the third, a, a, an absolutely great goal from range, which is not something we've ever seen from Eddie and Ketty before. And in fact, how about this for a crazy bonus stat for you? The Ooh, distance yeah. on that goal for Eddie and Ketia, is greater than the distance of all his other Premier League goals for Arsenal combined. <laughs> that is fantastic. I'm a huge fan uh, of that stat. That should have been your useless trivia. Um, I would have gone nuts. <laughs> that's um, all right. That's a bonus for you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, it, it's impressive. I think that one thing to to mention that we probably haven't really given enough credit to is that We've we've been critical in the past of Arsenal not signing um, more and better strikers uh, to back up Gabriel Jesus because um, we didn't feel like Eddie Nketiah, for example, was the man to help guide Arsenal to a title um, win last year. However, the flip side of continuing to play someone like Eddie Nketiah, while like one outcome is definitely the fact that you don't get to win a world a Premier League. I was about to say World Cup there. Um, the the good part is you do get a player that develops um, and it seems as if that is what's happening. Um, more game time for a young player equals a better, more well-rounded player that seems to be getting more confident and and, and better. And I think maybe we, we could even see it in a couple of years' time if he does develop into uh, a player that's capable of contributing 15-plus goals in a Premier League season as a significant net win because Arsenal were never really going to win 
the the Premier League that year. It was always going to be Man City. Um, I'm away off that judgment yet, but um, yeah, I, I personally think it's wicked. It's it's nice to see a player that I and a lot of other people have constantly underestimated do pretty well. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it's it's quite impressive. He's now equaled his best ever, um, you know, goal tally in the Premier League uh, for Arsenal. It's only October. It is, of course, worth noting that that best ever goal tally is five. So <laughs> it wasn't exactly all you needed was one good game, and this was one good game, and you are over halfway there. Um, I did also think oh, one, that one Sheffield very United good were... game. Pre- Premier League hat tricks don't just grow on trees. They absolutely don't. They absolutely don't. Although, what I would say, and they were great goals, but Sheffield United were absolutely like as bad as I've seen a team play in the Premier League, and that they've oh, done it a, a couple lane. of times this season already. Obviously, obviously <laughs> the the eight nil. <laughs> but like, I mean, just watching them, it wasn't even sort of the defensive stuff. It was just like putting balls out. They were trying to play long balls, and they were going out for throw-ins. They kept sort of not being able to trap balls, and it wasn't even like a particularly. I think it got rainy towards the end, but it wasn't even like a particularly wet day, and they were sort of slip. Feel like they were slipping all over the place. Um, so yeah, on the one hand, great from from Katia. I mean, the interesting thing now is you know Gabriel Jesus has got injured yet again. And it's a solid chance now, off the back of his hat trick, for him to make his case in the months left until January. You know, he's got, what was it, three months, or to say November, December. So he's got two months now until the window opens, as of tomorrow, which is November. Can he do enough in that period to convince Arsenal, hey, we can save the money we would have spent on whoever it is, Ivan Tony, and instead put that on someone else or, or not save it? Or is that going to be basically what happened last season and Arsenal are going to slip away again because <laughs> he's had a purple patch? Well, I don't know. I mean, last season he scored four goals from 30 appearances in the Premier League. And this season so far, he's got five from 10. That's already better. Um, And if he were to play another 20 games, I think it would be crazy to suggest that he wouldn't score another couple at least, if not um, more than five. So I think think he is obviously improving. But again, is it going to be enough for, for Arsenal and their ambitions. I, I don't know that answer. Um, there are obviously loads of factors that will that will kind of feed into it, but um, I would probably still look to sign someone. I'd probably look to sign someone that was slightly different to both Jesus and Nketiah. Um, I'd probably look to sign, hire someone, hire someone, sign someone that was a bit more of a target man. Um, and then you can have three strings to your bow um, and, and not feel like you're completely squeezing out Nketiah um, from being able to continue to progress and get game time. Um, that would be my call. Yeah, I think those are all fair points. And it, it's funny because it's like, how old is too old? How, like, At what age is a player no longer a young prospect? Eddie Nketiah is now 24. So there's a case to be made that he could still develop. But there's also a case to be made that would you not rather get a player at 24 who's fully formed and uh, or, you know, sort of the, the finished article? Um I kind of want, I don't want to stick on Eddie and Keta too long, so I'm sure we'll have lots of time to talk about him if he scores a hat-trick every game now until Jesus is back, or doesn't score another goal until <laughs> Jesus is back. Um, but just wanted to sort of point out, uh, you know, this game, obviously Eddie and Keta a hat-trick, hat-trick for a youth player is always a great time. The first goal for Takahiro Tomiyasu, uh, Fabio Vieira scoring a penalty and sort of putting the, I think he's expecting a baby, um, with that sort of celebration. Some feel-good football for Arsenal, and have looked a bit muted to start this season aside obviously from that win over City but I was sort of looking at the table and I was like you know what the team is second (laughs) is this a bit harsh of Arsenal has this sort of been there all along because even watching the first half of this game I was like why are they all afraid to shoot 
are they sort of is it one of those examples where they're maybe sort of failing the eye test but getting the results anyway and they're actually better than we think this season because it seems to me like they've had a massive drop off from last season but at the same time uh, the other funny thing I was looking at the table if it weren't for that um Matip own goal at the very end of Liverpool Spurs Arsenal would be not only would Arsenal be top but they'd be top on like I think yellow cards because them and Liverpool would have had exactly the same uh, wins and draws and exactly the same amount of goal difference and also goals for and goals against so Arsenal would be top albeit on yellow cards but if not for a sort of freak late goal where everyone sort of agrees that Tottenham got quite lucky Arsenal would be top and yet I feel like the general narrative and the narrative I've been sort of following is not as good this season what what, what do you think where do you sit on it? I think the eye test is that they haven't been as good. But if you look at their results, it's pretty consistently strong. Um, you know, they beat Man City this month. Um, they also beat Sevilla in the Champions League this month. And that is no uh, walk in the park. They're a very successful European team. Um, they've not lost uh, against Spurs or Chelsea. They potentially could have won at least one of those games, but they didn't lose them. Um, you know, I think you know they beat Man U in the Prem. Um, again, not necessarily a club uh, doing particularly well, but I-, I would agree with you that they are absolutely there and, and they're two points off top spot. Um, I do think, again, that it does seem like a lot of clubs are really struggling to get going this season. And, and I think that um, it's probably indicative of the fact that Arsenal are doing well. That's definitely helped. But also, if Arsenal are playing better than everyone else in the league, then yes, they absolutely deserve to be where they are and we should be very impressed with them. Yeah, I think that's a that's a fair summary of things. It's, it's definitely a really exciting season here. We could have, for the first time in God knows how long, a four-way title race, which City will ultimately obviously win anyway, but it'll be an exciting ride. Um, or even, I, I mean, Rupert, currently it's a five-way race with Aston Villa. Yeah, yeah, God, how can I discount Villa? Um, however, um, we have come to time here. There's lots more I'd love to discuss with you, but I think uh, probably a good time to end it for this week. Cam, great to talk to you and thank you to everyone at home for listening. We will catch you next week. That's it for this time. Cheers, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshill.